Uh, looks like a great summer. Good. So uh, how's everybody doing? Good. Got your Memorial Day all planned out. Feast. Lay around. Okay. This afternoon, uh, Lori and I are leaving for Lancaster, and I am not going to think about one of you for three days. <laughs> so, uh, yep. Go check out the dairy cows, have a good time with uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> okay, we're, uh, today's Memorial Day, and uh, have, you, have you ever seen the, the movie... It is me? There's a movie called Hacksaw Ridge, and uh, on Memorial Day, if you uh, don't, you can't figure out anything else you're going to do, uh, or tonight, uh, see if you can watch that. It's a terrific movie for uh, for Memorial Day. A little rough on the, yeah, but the story is amazing. So I always look up these stories. Uh, it's about a guy named Desmond T. Doss, and uh, he was a seven-day seven Adventist, and so. Uh, he didn't believe in carrying firearms or guns, um, and, but he still joined the Marines um, and said, nope, I'm going to do whatever I need to do. I want to become a medic, but I don't want to carry a gun. And he went through a lot of persecution for that, but he ended up doing it. And then they end up in a place called Hacksaw Ridge, which was in a tiny little island where they had to, to take the, the ridge, they had to climb up a 200-foot rope ladder. So all these soldiers would climb up this 200-foot rope ladder, take the ridge, and the Japanese had built all these tunnels. They would fight, run down in the tunnels, wait till dark or wait till a certain time. They'd come back up and kill a bunch of soldiers and drive them off the ridge. They did this a couple of times. And this, uh, this last time in the movie, uh, what happens is they come up they take the, the Americans take the, the uh, ridge, and then, of course, the Japanese come back up, drive them off the ridge. But this uh, Desmond, he doesn't leave. He stays up there in, uh, and for 24 hours without a rifle, while being shot at and uh, being in great danger, he starts going and finding soldiers who's been injured and pulling them off and then sending them down all by himself. Seven, over 73 soldiers, he saved their lives that day. He was willing to give his life. He knew what he was willing to die for. 
He knew what was worth dying for. And that's what he was willing to do. The other thing about the movie, if you do watch it, is this. I always look up these movies to find out the true story. Because you know, like they say true story, and then you look it up, and you're like, yeah, there was a guy named Desmond. He never really joined the Marines. He never really went to World War II. But there was a guy named, well, in this one, total opposite. The real story is more dramatic than the movie. And they actually said, we didn't put the real story in because people would think it was fake, that it really couldn't have happened. And so watch the movie, then look up the real story. It's even more dramatic than the movie. It's, 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 it's an incredible story. He knew what he was willing to die for. But we're working on what's willing, what is worth living for. How do you live a life that's worth living? How do you do that? And we started and we talked about how Jesus came to give you a life and give you a life worth living, about the, the love and the hope and the strength and the courage that he wants to build in your life. We talk about that a lot at Skyline, this life that he wants to give you. How many times in your life have you said, that's great, that's great, that's great. Why doesn't God tell me what to do? Why doesn't God give me the path to take? How do, why doesn't God tell me what to do so I can build this life worth living? And uh, we, think he, we think he has. We think it's in the Bible. Uh, we've got a little something called the Skyline Growth Path. No, we don't think this growth path was actually directly from God. But we do think that we built it off of what God has to say. So did everybody get your little, uh, little tiny growth path there? Yes? No? No? There should be a bunch of them out there. Yeah, can you knock on the backpacks there and see if they got it? We got a couple of them here. Did only a few people get them? Okay, good. Now, if you are like me and uh, you need glasses, then uh, you're out of luck. You are not going to be able to read that thing. Uh, but for everybody else, you should be able, to, be able to follow along as we work through it. And we began by talking about how a life worth living is built on Jesus, his grace, and his promises for you. We have these four blocks that you are forgiven, you're holy, you're a servant, and you're his witness. That when you come to Christ and you put your faith in Christ, these four things become true of you. It's who you are. He takes your sin and he replaces it with his righteousness, with his life. But a life worth living is something that you begin to develop because you begin to believe or you grow in your faith or you grow in believing Jesus for what he's done for you. And so last week we looked at the beginning, which is where it starts, where you come to know Christ. And this week we're going to take a look at fed, uh, uh, the fed by others. And just real quickly, I'm going to read those pieces for this particular step. Jesus has given you amazing promises. But in many ways you are a baby learning to walk. In this step, you learn from others what grace is, and how to live from each block. How to apply being forgiven, not only to your relationship with God, but your relationship to your spouse, to your children, to the people at work. You've been given the block of, of righteousness, this holiness. How do you apply that, not only to your relationship to God, but all of these other areas of your life? The same with being a servant, and the same with being a witness. The key is this. Christ followers don't just learn things. It's not a knowledge thing alone. They act on them together. It's something that we practice together. We encourage each other. We build each other up together. 
We have a toolbox where there's more tools in here than what we've listed. We, don't, we can't list them all here, but life groups, uh, growth catalysts, growth plans, put off, put on, worksheets, and arenas. You're like, well, I, don't, I don't know what those are. The concierge will teach you everything you need to know about those as well as in life groups. You get a chance to use those and put those into place. What's the marker? How do you, how do you know you've come to the end or you've, you're ready to take the next step after this step? You're growing in your relationship with Jesus by applying the four blocks. You're in a life group. You're apprenticing in ministry. And someone is asking you the grace application questions consistently. We'll teach you what those are uh, next week. So that's the, that's the one we're working on today. And we are going to take a look at a passage in 1 Peter where he, he really walks through what's at the core of taking this step. What's the heart of step number one, which is being fed by others? It says, through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so your faith and hope are in God. So the through him is through Jesus. It's through Jesus that you believe in God. If you in your life are at a place where you're like, I believe in God, but it's not through Jesus, then you haven't taken the beginning step. The beginning step is the way that I came to know God, the way I connected to God, the way that I found purpose and strength, love, hope, and courage, is through Jesus. I came to see that Jesus came for me, and I placed my trust in him. It's through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Your hope does not come from you. It doesn't come from your job. It doesn't come from uh, something around you. It doesn't come from your marriage. Your hope comes from God and the promises that he's made you. It says, now, that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. So oftentimes you say, well, uh, purified myself by obeying the truth. Well, first of all, we see that's the holiness block. To be purified and holiness, it's the same thing. It's because I become clean by obeying the truth. Does that mean you took the Ten Commandments and you obeyed them? Does it mean you figured this thing out? Like, you just obey those, you just obey the Bible all the time. You're just doing great. Most of you are discouraged if that's the case because uh, you, many of you, broke at least one, ten, one of the Ten Commandments on the way to church this morning. And some of you are like, no, I didn't. I had a great morning. Well, got bad news yet. On the way home today, you're probably going to break one. This is not that you turned your life around. This is that you put your faith in Christ. You believed Jesus. Jesus says that the way to the Father is by faith in him. The way that you obey Jesus' commands is to believe him and love one another. And every one of you who's taken this beginning step has experienced this. When you believe Jesus you start to love other people. Every time you believe Jesus, you start to love other people. When you come to church and you, you've, you've come to know Christ and you believe Jesus, you love these people. 
Matter of fact, that's one of the really beautiful things about Skyline. It's one of the things that is kind of puzzling. People will often walk into Skyline, they're here for a few weeks, they're like, I think these people actually love each other. Like, I think they really love each other. Is that because we work so hard at loving each other? It's actually not. I've been in a lot of churches before that tried to love each other. It doesn't work. But when you believe Jesus, you do love each other. It happens in your marriage as well. When you believe Jesus for who he says you are and what he's doing in your life, you love your spouse. It's a really cool thing that happens. So now that you've purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you're, you have sincere love for each other, this love comes from this relationship with Jesus. Love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. That's that beginning step. You're a new person. Not of perishable seed, not of seed that spoils, not something that starts and then dies, not something that, oh man, this is great, this is awesome, but then it fades away, but imperishable, something that cannot spoil through the living and enduring word of God. Because this step, this path, this relationship, this life worth living is built on God's word. It's built on God's promise. It comes from him. Then he says this. All people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Glory is what we're after. A life worth living is what we're after. Glory is when someone recognizes or when you truly have a life worth living. Glory is something that you look at it and you're like, wow, that's amazing. And something that's truly glorious, it actually has that value to it. So when you see it, you're amazed by it. There's times when you've been driving or you got up in the morning and you saw the sunrise. And you're like, wow, that is truly so beautiful. It's glorious. For others of you, if you're into cars, and uh, it's too bad you didn't live in the 50s and 60s because that's when the greatest cars were made. Matter of fact, they've been remaking them, right? The 1968 Camaro was a glorious car. I'm sorry for you younger guys. You're like, what? But there was a car made back in 1968. That, honestly, honestly, when you see it drive down the road, you go, wow, that is a cool car. It's glorious. It says, all people are, glass, are, are grass and all their glory. What do, you, what do you glorify? What is it that you look at it and you're like, wow. Maybe you're into music. You're like, that band is, I know you don't say this. I know. Don't do this around your friends, man. You will get, they will make fun of you forever. Matter of fact, you might start a new fad, though. Like, watch, you go watch your favorite band, you go, that band is glorious. It might take off. Or you're into some video game, and you just, it's the most glorious video game you've ever seen. Right? It's, it's glorious. Facebook is kind of the home of glory. It's the home of glory. 
People put things on Facebook so they will be glorified. Makes sense, right? You put things on Facebook and you smile in such a way and you ladies, who taught you the hip thing, right? <laughs> who taught you guys that? <laughs> You're like, what? You should, we should do that in church sometimes. Just carry around a your little phone or camera, right? Stick it out. You walk by a group of ladies, they just stick their hip right out there. They just know, but I don't know what it is. And then you do the, this thing, and we won't get in the lip thing, but, right? So you, it's the home of glory. It says this. It's like the flowers of the field. So it looks beautiful for a time. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Always. It always is only glorious for a time. And then it falls. But the word of God or the word of the Lord endures forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. What God says in the Bible is a glory that lasts forever. He says, the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. So when we take that word and we put it to our lives, when we learn what it has to say and we put that to our lives, then that doesn't just last for a year or 10 years or 50 years or 100 years. Or a thousand years. Or ten thousand years. When you practice, when you put this into place, and you love other people out of your relationship with Jesus, and you know what? I'm going to put that other person first. And I'm going to be last. That glory lasts forever. That's the definition of a life worth living. You mean, you mean I lived my life in such a way that it's going to last forever? Forever. You mean I didn't get the promotion and I didn't get the girl I want, I didn't get these things, but I did give my life to putting others first and it's going to last forever? It's going to last forever. Why? Because it's built on the enduring Word of God. It is the Word of God. And it's the Word of God that lasts forever. Whatever God says stays true forever. It's the most amazing thing about the Bible. Do you know that 2,000 years ago, there were people sitting around, and someone was telling them, look, if, if you do the last, first, the first. And they took it to heart, and they put it into practice, and they built lives. And we're 2,000 years later. And just like it lit their hearts on fire, it's lighting your heart on fire. It's amazing. Why? Because it lasts forever. It endures. I love remembering my father-in-law's funeral. He was, he was a guy that uh, went to work for a Clark Equipment Company, married a beautiful young lady, was beginning, was building a life, had uh, bought himself like 
80 acres, and he was really building this really great life. He had really special talents. He was, uh, one of, he was the best fast-pitch softball player, really, in the whole county. He had a reputation that catchers had to put extra tape on their thumbs because he pitched so hard he would break their thumbs if they didn't catch the ball right. He was, he was really an amazing hunter. He was so good at hunting that uh, they gave up on guns. And so they would bird hunt, pheasant hunt, with bow and arrow. And they started a competition that said, if you did not shoot the pheasant, only in the neck, it didn't count. Like, if you shot him in the body, it didn't count. That's how good he was. And then his wife got MS and started to go downhill. And then Clark Equipment Company, kind of their union sold him out, and they moved to North Carolina, and he couldn't move. So now he's 50 years old. The best jobs he can get are barely above minimum wage. And his life is spent taking care of his wife, who can't walk anymore. You, you looked at that life, and you're like, man, that is not a life worth living. Like, he got cheated out of life. But then you go to his funeral. Now, I've done a lot of funerals. I know funerals. I've been around a lot of funerals, and so have you. You've been around enough of them to know that when you go to a funeral, people try to come up with good things to say about people, but they're making it up. They're not telling the truth. They're leaving out major swaths of that person's life. My father-in-law's funeral, there were people telling story after story after story after story. No one was trying to glorify him. They were just telling the stories. And every story glorified him. As a faithful, amazingly loving, honest man. It was a life that was actually built on the Word of God. And so therefore, that glory lasts forever. He goes on to say, Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and, and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Get rid of that. It's kind of like the tool that we have. It's called put off and put on. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk. It's talking about the Bible. In another passage, it actually says, crave spiritual milk of the word. So that it may, so by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You can live a life worth living. How? Well, this first step starts with you interact with the Bible like it's the most precious thing in the world. You try to take in the Bible. You try to take in what God has to say, just like a baby does on milk. You understand that what I need more than anything, the first thing I've got to do is I've got to find out what the Bible has to say and what it means and how do, I do it? how do I put that into my life? How do I practice what it has to say? So here's a couple of things I want you to think about as we think about putting the life or putting the Bible into our lives or taking this first step. So a life worth living is built on Jesus. This is a personal relationship with him. Interacting with the Bible is about interacting with Jesus personally. It's built on his grace. I don't deserve this. This is a gift that has been given to me. And his promises. 
God has promised me things. And to build a life worth living means I come to believe Jesus for those things. So, number one, Jesus has given you everything you need to, to grow. Jesus has already given you everything you need to grow. There's no one in this room that can't build a life worth living. There's no one in this room that is left out, that is uh, deformed, that has uh, got a problem where this can't happen in your life. You already have what you need to grow. That's how it works with a baby. When a baby is a year old, they can walk. They don't always walk when they're a year old, but they can. They have the feet, they have the muscles, they have the balance, they have all of it. But they don't know it. They don't believe it. And so they don't walk. Well, how, do you, how do I know that's true? Because that baby, one day, won't, they, won't, they won't walk at all. Although I pride myself on my ability to get a kid to take their first step. I, I wanted it to be that I got all of my grandchildren to take their first step, but I didn't make it. Um, but what happens after they take that first step? Or two or three. One week, they can't walk at all. Next week, they're walking all over the place. A month, they're almost running. Did their muscles change that much in that much time? No. They already had what it took. They just started practicing it. Do you remember when you uh, learned to read? Do you remember? Jack and Jane, all that stuff? Do you remember the feeling, I can't do this? Now, some of you, you can't relate to this. You weren't like this. You just read. I understand. Yeah, that's good. thank you for telling us who you are. Uh, but for the rest of us, I can't, I can't do this. Or you see a word, you're like, I'll never be able to read that word. It's so big. That's so... No. You had everything you needed to be able to read. You just had to start to put it into practice. And before you know it, you're reading. How about when you first rode a bike? Right? You get on that bike... And, and whoever's teaching you to, to ride the bike, you're, don't let go, don't let go, don't let go, please don't let go. And you're crying. You're like, no, we're going to go again. And don't let go, don't let go. And you turn around, and they're like 25 feet away from you. You've been riding for 25 feet. What do you do? You crash. Why? Because I can't ride a bike. Yes, you can. You have everything you need to ride a bike. When you teach somebody how to ride a bike, all you have to do is convince them they can ride the bike. They have everything they need to ride the bike. That's true for you. You don't need Jesus to do one more thing so you can build a life worth living. He's already done it all. He's ready. He's ready to push you along and let you go. He's given you Jesus. So follow him. Follow him. Only do it like a baby who's after pure spiritual milk of the word, which is, okay, wherever Jesus goes, that's where I'm going to go. Don't do it like an adult. What does an adult do? Jesus, where are you going to go? Well, just follow me. No, no, no. Tell me where you're going. What direction are you going in? We're going to go this way. Okay, now, Jesus, tell me where we're going to end up, because once you tell me where you end up, then I'll decide if I'm going to follow. No. No, that's not how a little kid does it. I used to love my dad. My dad walked funny. His feet turned almost straight up. And so when it snowed, I loved to follow in my dad's footsteps because you could see him. 
and you'd be. <laughs> I loved it. I only had my eyes on one thing, his steps. Jesus, follow his footsteps. Don't question where you're going to end up. That's not what a child does. They learn to just follow Jesus. The Bible, read it. Your life is full of lies. When I meet somebody, <laughs> nowadays, almost any time I meet somebody, when they come talk to me about relationships, the first thing I have to teach them is this. Everything you do is wrong. Like backwards, upside down. That's the worst way you could possibly do relationships. Because the world we live in teaches you to do relationships exactly the opposite. You need the Bible to tell you the truth so you can get rid of those lies and replace it with what's true. And to do that, you've got to read it. And then you have people. Ask questions. Be honest and don't give up. That's what life groups are all about. Life groups are all about you being able to go, hey, this is what I think. And the rest of the group going, where'd you get that idea from? And then going, does that fit the Bible? And is that a lie or is that the truth? And then you being, if you're honest with it, like a child, man, you grow. And then you have tools. We've got a bunch of tools. One of them is our growth plan. Another one is truth and lies. You can pick them up in the, uh, in the back. Number two, this is important. And I'm not sure you know this is true. Even if you know it's true, I'm not sure you believe it. Jesus will not make you grow. Jesus will not make you grow. He won't do it. He will not make you follow him. He will not make you pick up that Bible and read it. He will not make you share your life with other people. You have to respond to him. He invites you, but you have to respond. We're going to take a look at uh, a video, and this is a guy who is the coach of the University of um, Connecticut's basketball team. He's the greatest women's basketball coach ever. He, he's really close to the greatest coach ever in terms of his success and what he's done with people. And uh, he has something to say about this idea of humility, obedience, what it takes to grow. Take a look at this. Recruiting enthusiastic kids is harder than it's ever been. Because every kid watches TV and they watch the NBA or they watch Major League Baseball or they watch the NFL, whatever sport they watch, WNBA, it doesn't matter. And what they see is people just being really cool. So they think that's how they're going to act. And they haven't, they haven't even figured out which foot to use as a pivot foot and they're going to act like they're really good players. You see it all the time. See it at every AAU tournament, you see it at every high school game. So recruiting kids that are like really upbeat and loving life and love the game and have this tremendous appreciation for when their teammates do something well, that's hard. That's hard. It's really hard. So on our team, we, me, my coaching staff, 
we put a huge premium on body language. And if your body language is bad, you will never get in the game. Ever. I don't, I don't care how good you are. If somebody says, well, you know, you just benched Stewie for, you know, 35 minutes in the Memphis game a couple years ago. Yeah, I did. Oh, but I was to motivate her for the South Carolina game the following Monday. No, it wasn't. Stewie was acting like a 12-year-old. So I put her on the bench and said, sit there. It doesn't matter on our team. Now, the other coaches might say, well, you can do that because you got three other, you know, All-Americans. I get that. I understand that. But I'd rather lose than watch kids play the way some kids play. I'd rather lose. And they're allowed to get away with just whatever. And they're always thinking about themselves. Me, 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 me. I didn't score, so why should I be happy? I'm not getting enough minutes. Why should I be happy? That's the world that we live in today, unfortunately. And kids check the scoreboard sometimes because they're going to get yelled at by their parents if they don't score enough points. Don't get me started. So when I, when I look at my team, they know this. When I watch game film, I'm checking what's going on on the bench. And if somebody's asleep over there, somebody doesn't care, somebody's not engaged in the game, they will never get in the game, ever. And they know that. They know I'm not kidding. So maybe you've taken the beginning step. Are you a spoiled brat? Do you interact with Jesus like he owes you a life worth living? Do you interact with Jesus like you're doing him a favor by following him? One of the things that uh, is absolutely true, when you get the chance to be coached by a great coach, that is a special gift that you've been given. And when Jesus has called you to be a part of his family, this is a special gift you have been given. This is not something you deserve. And so the first thing is humility. Your life is not your own. It's been bought with the blood of Christ. When you took that step, that beginning step, you said, Jesus, you can have my sin. That is my life. Now you're the boss of my life. It means accepting help on their terms. In other words, when you interact with people and when you interact with Jesus, you accept the help on their terms. When it comes to parenting, when it comes to your marriage, when it comes to the way you interact with people at work, do you go seek advice from other people and then take that advice and go, I think I'll do that part and not that part and that part. I, I think I'll decide what I think about that. That's a spoiled brat. That's someone who thinks they're still the boss of their life. And the last is obedience. The greatest people who grow the fastest are the people who obey first time. If that's what the boss said, that's what I'm going to do. Now, after they do it 10 times, they might decide, you know what, I think there's a better way to do that. And they might learn that there is a better way to do that. But they grow the fastest because they obey first time. They don't hear the command and then go, I'll decide if that fits the way I want to live my life. No. Why? Because I'm a baby. 
and I want to learn from Jesus how to live a life worth living. He's given you everything you need. Everything. Will you humble yourself? Remember, he's the boss. Trust him. We're about to take communion. As we do, I'm going to explain to you how we're going to do it, and then we'll walk through that piece. So we've, uh, we used to do communion where everybody stood up, went and got it, but with the way the rows are, we thought that would kind of be a giant traffic jam. And so today, we get to do our very first uh, communion, and you're going to be, that's right, in our new space, and you're going to be served. This takes some practice, all right, but we're going to learn how to do this. This is how it works. Okay. Uh, you guys are the guinea pigs right here. Uh, first comes the crackers. And so you pass the bread. What you do is you take it, you pass it to the next person, and then they serve it to you. Nope, you got to serve it to her. She missed it. She didn't get any. All right, good. Pass it. As it comes by, if you're not, not going to take communion today, that's fine. You're welcome to take it. It's, uh, it's your choice. And the same thing with the juice. You'll take the tray, pass it to the person past you, and then they will serve you. Pass it, the person will serve you. Otherwise, you try to pass the prey with it in your hands, and that gets a little tricky. bread represents his body, which was broken for you. Before you take the bread, I'd ask you to just close your eyes. Think through this week, maybe the last month. Who's the boss of your life? Are you trying to build a life worth living? by being the boss of your life. This morning, I encourage you to put Jesus back on that throne. 
He gave everything so that you could be forgiven and free and holy. Let's take the bread together. Washes away the sin. It pays for the sin. It pays for a, a life worth, not worth living. And it makes you white as snow. Envision that you're wrapping the righteousness of Christ around you. value and you have a life worth living because it is his life and his righteousness and his goodness and he has given all of it to you accept the grace and the goodness of Jesus let's take the juice together Your word endures forever. 